So Psalm 45, let's hear the word of our God. For the director of music to the tune of lilies of the sons of Korah, a masquil, a wedding song. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of the sons of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your side, O mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously on behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. Let your right hand display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From palaces adorned with ivory, the music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honored women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. The king will be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. Men of wealth will seek your favor. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments, she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her and are brought to you. They are led in with joy and gladness. They enter the palace of the king. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. Let us pray. Father, our help is in you, the maker of heaven and earth, and so we pray that you would come now and by your Holy Spirit illuminate our minds, conform our wills, and stir our affections for your Son, the Lord Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised, world without end. Amen. My wedding was one of the happiest days of my life. It was a beautiful sunny day in Sydney, Australia, not a cloud in the sky. Jackie and I were married in a lovely old Anglican church with one of the longest red carpets in Sydney. The church was decorated with beautiful flowers. The music was great and grand for the occasion. Jackie walked into the Hallelujah Chorus. 
All our family and friends were there, apart from about 300 Irish guests who told me they missed their flight. Uh, my two brothers, the best men, looked all right. Uh, the bridesmaids looked beautiful in their long blue dresses. Both fathers looked handsome in their suits with matching ties. Uh, my mother wore a lovely pink outfit. The bride's mother was beautifully dressed in red. And then as the center of attention, and rightly so, looking absolutely magnificent, was the groom. <laughs> I was clean-shaven. I wore a dark suit with a white shirt and a deep purple tie. Got my hair cut back and sides. I had a white flower in my lapel. My shoes were polished for once. It was an amazing occasion. Oh, and uh, Jackie didn't look too bad either. My ladies, you happy enough with the description of my wedding? Did I go into enough details for you? Of course not. What was wrong with my description of my wedding? The bride, the lovely Jackie, wasn't the center of attention, right? Because that's what we expect at weddings, isn't it? We expect the bride to be the center of attention. It's all about the bride. She's the center of attention. It's who we talk about after we've been to a wedding, don't we? What did the bride look like? What was she wearing? But did you notice who's the center of attention in this wedding song of Psalm 45? It's the bridegroom. It's the man. It's the king, not the bride. We see that by how it's introduced in verse 1. It's a love song for a royal wedding addressed to the king. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. This actually makes the psalm a unique psalm in the Psalter because the psalms are either about God or are addressed to God. Even Psalm 72, which is all about Israel's king, is actually addressed to God. But this psalm is the only psalm that is addressed to Israel's king. It's for the king. He's the center of attention. And he remains so throughout the song. Just cast your eye down. The psalm, you see the bridegroom gets 10 verses from verse 2 to 9 and then verses 16 to 17. And the bride, she gets six verses, verses 10 to 15, and even then, only three of those are actually about what she looks like on her wedding day. This is a love song for the bridegroom on his wedding day, not for the bride on her wedding day. The songwriter in verse one may be the king's best man, which I think makes good sense. He's certainly someone who knows the king, admires the king, and his admiration is so great that his heart overflows into song for him. One older version of the Bible has the lovely phrase, my heart bubbleth over with a love song for the king. Here's a best man who can't keep his wedding speech to himself. He has to sing about it. Have you ever heard a wedding speech sung? And notice that this one is sung before it is written, verse 1. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite 
my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. It's in the songwriter's heart first, then on his tongue before it flows out of his pen. But what is it about this king that makes this songwriter burst into spontaneous praise? Well, verse 2, it's the beauty of the king. You are the most excellent of the sons of men. Literally, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. This opening line is like the umbrella statement under which everything else in the song hangs. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. This is the big surprise in the psalm. The bridegroom out beautifies the bride. And the songwriter shows us this in four ways. Number one, there's the beauty of his words. The beauty of his words, verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace. Here's another surprise in this royal wedding love song. The defining mark of beauty in this king is not his looks, but his lips. It's not his height or his hair or his eyes or his physique. It's his speech. It's not what he looks like that is beautiful. It's what he sounds like. His words drip with grace because grace has been poured upon them as if it's grace from on high that has been poured down. It's as if he's been anointed to be a man of grace, to forgive, to free, to favor by what he says. This is what would have been on the front pages of the Israeli daily the day after the wedding, the king's speech. The identifying mark of this royal bridegroom would have been his words, his gracious words. And for his gracious words, he receives a reward from God. That's why the word since or therefore is there in verse 2. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. There are actually three therefores in this psalm. Verse 2, therefore God has blessed you forever. Verse 7, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore God your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. And verse 17, I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore the nations will praise you forever and ever. Three times the king is rewarded in this psalm with something because of something he is or something he does. And here in verse 2, he is eternally blessed by God because he is a man of grace. Because he's a gracious man, he gets to be a blessed man. And in Bible times, the concept of blessing was primarily connected to physical, material blessing. And in this case, it would have been that the king would have been uh, promised a posterity of children. So for being a man of grace, he gets to be a man of posterity. He is blessed, if you like, with an eternal dynasty. He gets sons on his throne forever. So that's the first way this songwriter shows us the beauty of this king. There's the beauty of his words. Second, 
There's the beauty of his war. The beauty of his war. Verses 3 to 5. Gird your sword upon your side, O mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously on behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. Let your right hand display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. If in verse 2, this king knows how to forgive, here he knows how to fight. His lips drip with grace, but he has a sword strapped to his thigh, verse 3. His right hand knows how to use it, verse 5. On his back is a quiver of arrows that he shoots into the hearts of his enemies. Yes, he's a man of grace, but he's also a man of war. And we need to see the connection between the two. The commands of verses 3 to 5, to go to war, only follow because he has first been established as a man of grace. Only gracious men are qualified to fight. The problem with Hitler, he was an angry man. And angry men never have a just cause for war. But a gracious man who fights, he has a cause to fight for. And that's what this king fights for, verse 4. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously on behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. This is the beauty of his war, what he fights for. Truth, the truth. Humility, instead of pride. Righteousness, the right standard in society. This is the beauty of his war, what he fights for. Now, that might sound like a bit of a contradiction. Beauty and war, they're not natural bedfellows, are they? I mean, have you ever heard of a beautiful war? Well, let me take you to Buchenwald, to one of the Nazi concentration camps in Germany. Uh, Jackie and I visited it a number of years ago when we traveled through Germany. We saw at that concentration camp the inhumane conditions that the Jewish prisoners lived in. We saw the bear cage beside the wire fence where the Nazis would feed the bears meat to taunt the Jews that the bears were better fed than they were with their water and bread. We saw the gas chambers and an execution chamber where Nazis, for fun, would line up Jews against a wall and ask them to look through a tiny hole in the wall only to be shot by officers on the other side who were playing games with who could see if who could get the bullet through the hole in the wall. I remember walking around this concentration camp feeling physically sick. Jackie and I hardly spoke to each other for about an hour. But there was one thing that lifted our spirits that day, just a little. It was the clock at the entrance gate. It read 3.15 p.m. It has never read anything else since the end of the war. Because that was the time when the American soldiers discovered Buchenwald and freed the prisoners from their horror. 
Now just imagine what the Jewish prisoners saw that day as the American forces rolled up in their tanks and military vehicles at 3.15 p.m. What did they see? They saw men in tanks with machine guns, with their army gear on. Were they horrible-looking men or beautiful-looking men? They were beautiful-looking men because of what they came to fight for. They freed them from this tyranny of evil men. Fighting men are beautiful men when they have a just cause and a good cause to fight for. And that's like this king's war. The songwriter celebrates the beauty of his war because of what he fights for. He fights to replace lies with truth, pride with humility, wickedness with righteousness. But the question is, why is this songwriter talking about war at all? I mean, after all, this is a love song for a royal wedding. I mean, come on, there's a time and a place. Why combine wedding and war? Well, in the case of kings, wedding and war go together. If I may be all British for a moment, just think of how Prince Charles, Prince William, or Prince Harry dressed on their wedding days. Did you notice? In their military uniforms. Why? Because wedding and war go together for kings and princes. The defense of the realm is linked to the continuation of the royal line. No royal line, no future realm. No future realm, no lasting kingdom. Wedding and war go together when you're a king. And that's why the songwriter includes this aspect of the king's beauty in his wedding song, because the establishment of this king's kingdom will be connected to his marriage, to his bride. But before we get to the wedding, there is one other aspect of the king's beauty I want you to see. We've seen the beauty of his words, the beauty of his war, and now there's the beauty of his rule, verse 6 and 7, the beauty of his rule. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness or justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. The beauty of this king's rule is seen in the fact that it is divine, eternal, and upright. His kingdom is divine. Your throne, O God, it's eternal will last forever and ever. It's upright. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Here's the beauty of his rule. It's divine. It's eternal. It's upright. But notice at what point in this psalm his divine, eternal, upright kingdom is established. Only after he has gone to war and defeated his enemies on the battlefield. This king only gets to receive the title of God after he has pierced the heart of his enemies on the battlefield. This king only gets to inherit an eternal kingdom after he has proved himself to be a man of grace, fighting for truth, humility, and righteousness. 
And when he gets the kingdom, when he gets to sit on the throne forever, what kind of a kingdom does he establish? A kingdom of justice, of uprightness. And that's because of the kind of man he is. You love righteousness, verse 7, and hate wickedness. His rule is founded in the right because he is upright. There's no neutrality in him. He understands the great antithesis in the world between righteousness and wickedness, and he loves the one and hates the other. This is what serves as the foundation of his kingdom of justice, his moral compass, his moral affection for good, his moral hatred for evil. His scepter is a scepter of justice because he has loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And that's the beauty of his rule. It's divine, it's eternal, it's upright because of the kind of man that he is. In other words, this king's beauty is not so much outward as it is inward. We at weddings look on the outward appearance, but this songwriter has looked on the bridegroom's heart. And just as there was a reward for the beauty of his words, in verse 2, he was eternally blessed, so now there is a reward for the beauty of his war and rule. Here's the second therefore in verse 7. Therefore, God your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and caesia. From palaces adorned with ivory, the music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honored women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. What is the reward for the beauty of his war and rule? He is joyfully anointed and made ready for marriage. Anointing here speaks of a ceremonial occasion. It suggests a coronation following his victory in battle and the establishment of his kingdom. And the sounding note of this coronation, did you see it there in verse 8 and 9? The sounding note is gladness and joy. For his love of righteousness and hate of wickedness, for his war on lies, pride, and wickedness in the name of truth, humility, and righteousness, this king gets to be the happiest man who has ever lived. Verse 7, your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. It's a nice reward if you've just been to war, isn't it? But there's just one problem. I wonder if you've spotted it. He's sitting on a throne. An eternal kingdom has been given to him, but he's all alone. And it is not good for man to be alone. Jane Austen begins her famous novel, Pride and Prejudice. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune, ladies, is in want of a wife. And this king is in possession of an eternal kingdom, and he is in want of a wife. 
and the occasion builds in atmosphere and tension. His robes are scented with all the best fragrances of the day, myrrh, aloes, cassia. His ivory palaces are filled with music. Daughters of kings have come from, for the occasion. And at his right hand stands the royal bride, or more literally, the queen, dressed in gold of Ophir, the most expensive gold in the ancient Near East. Now, the queen here, the royal bride, might be his bride, or it might be his mother, the queen mother. If the queen is the bride, then the songwriter sort of fast-forwards proceedings and gives us a future snapshot of the king in his palace with his new bride on his right arm, sort of like the royal wedding photograph. But I don't think that's what's happening here. That would break the flow of how the psalm unfolds. The wedding hasn't taken place yet. The bride doesn't enter until verse 13 and 14. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold in embroidered garments. She is led to the king. She hasn't been led to the king yet. Do you see the problem? She hasn't arrived. And if it is the bride, then the exhortations in verse 10 for her to leave her family and go to the king seem a bit odd if in verse 9 she's already standing by his right hand. So I think it's better here to see this as a reference to the king's mother. Here is the offspring of a woman, of a queen, waiting to be married after he has crushed his enemy in war. So we're still waiting for the bride, and that's what we'd expect next, right? If this man is the most beautiful of men with a good fortune, surely the bride is on her way. Surely she can't wait to marry the most handsome of the sons of men. And so we'd expect verses 13 and 14. Here comes the bride. But that's not what comes next, is it? Verses 10 to 12 interrupt the flow. Listen, O daughter. Consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Here's the surprise. Here's the most beautiful of the sons of men sitting on his throne after a victorious battle with an eternal kingdom, and she's not coming. She's delaying. She's hesitating. She's having second thoughts. This is the tense part of any wedding, isn't it? The beginning part. Will the bride turn up? Has she met someone on the way to church? And in our Western culture, it's become a bit of a tradition, hasn't it, for the bride to be a wee bit late? It adds to the tension. Will she follow through with her commitment, or will she back out? And that's a bit like what's going on here. There seems to be some reason why she's hesitating. I, I know, ladies, what you're thinking. She's hesitating because the mother-in-law is standing beside him. I mean, get out of the picture, and then I'll come, right? Well, no, actually, it's her own family, not the in-laws, that are holding her back. Verse 10, forget your family and your father's house. Getting married to this king means leaving her family and people. It's a big deal for her. It involves a cost. 
It involves a change of allegiance and loyalty and location. Marriage is a big deal. And I think that most couples have moments when the weight of what they're about to do in their courtship or their engagement hits them. A lot of couples I know who are happily married now had wobbles in their courtship or their engagement. Jackie and I were no different. We had a wee wobble. I still try to tell myself Jackie had the wobble because she was feeling weak at the knees because she couldn't believe her luck. Jackie's side of the story is a wee bit different. See, Jackie's from Australia, and marrying me meant leaving her family and her country, which was no small thing for a young girl. If you're here and you've married internationally, cross-culturally, inter-county, inter-cross-border relations, uh, you know what that's like, okay? Marriage is a big deal because it involves at least one of you living away from your family and friends. And it was the same for this bride. She's clearly from another country, from another people. She clearly lives at home with her father and family, and leaving them was a big deal. And that's why there's this interlude in the song. That's why the songwriter sort of stops the flow and presses pause and talks to the bride in her chamber. Forget your people. Listen and give ear and go to your bridegroom. And look at the incentive that he gives her in verse 10. The king will be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. Men of wealth will seek your favor. In verse 11, if she leaves her family, she will cleave to the king and he will desire her beauty. She'll become the center of his attention. If she leaves her people and family, she will come under his authority as her Lord. Nothing bad about that if he is a man of truth, humility, and righteousness. If she leaves her people and family, she'll become a woman of influence. The people of Tyre will seek her favor. Now, that's a pretty big deal because in the ancient world, Tyre was the most prosperous neighbor to Israel, the richest of the peoples especially in Solomon's day. Yet the richest of the peoples of Tyre will come to her for favor. She will become a woman of influence. It's a bit like Kate, the Duchess of Cambridge, who married Prince William. Do you remember they had a wee wobble? In their courtship, they broke up for a time. Well, let's imagine they never got back together again. Do you think Kate Middleton would have opened hospitals attended charity balls, raised money for charities if she'd remained Kate Middleton or married someone else? No. She became a woman of influence for good by marrying Prince William. And we all know what happened. She did come to her wedding. She didn't hesitate, and they got over their wobble and they married. And that's what this bride does in verse 13 to 15. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her and are brought to you. They are led in with joy and gladness. They enter the palace of the king. This brings us to the fourth uh, way we see the beauty of this king, his bride. There's the beauty of his words, 
the beauty of his war, the beauty of his rule, and now forth the beauty of his bride. There are two indications here of her beauty. There's her dress. It's multicolored and interwoven with gold. Gold was the most expensive material in the ancient world, and only kings could afford to buy gold or to wear clothes with gold in them, which means that her robes have been given to her by her groom. Her beauty was given to her by her husband-to-be. She looks beautiful, but only because of him. That's the first sign of her beauty. And then there's also a hint of another beauty in verse 14. Did you notice who attends her? Virgin companions, which suggests that she herself is presented to the king as a virgin. This is her beauty, presented as a virgin, dressed in his beauty. And so she enters the palace of her king. And then it's as if the curtains are drawn and they head off on honeymoon to consummate the marriage. And then the psalm fast forwards a number of years to the king's posterity and praise. His posterity is seen in verse 16. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. This is a bit like the, be the best man's toast at the wedding reception. Only this is not his best wishes for the groom. It's his prophetic prediction about the groom. And notice it's a prediction about him, not her. The your in verse 16 is singular. The bridegroom will have sons. He will have a posterity. And these sons will follow in their father's footsteps. They will be princes in all the earth. Here is a marriage that produces children whose rule spreads beyond the borders of Israel into all the earth. And then the psalm ends with a focus on the king's praise. There's his posterity in verse 16 and now his praise in verse 17. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. This brings us to our final therefore. Remember, there were three therefores. Verse 2, for being a man of grace, therefore you will be blessed eternally. Verse 7, for winning the war and ruling rightly, therefore you will be anointed with gladness and made ready for your wedding. And now, for being remembered in all generations, therefore he is guaranteed worldwide praise forever. And again, the you're and the you are singular. This king's praise doesn't get passed to his sons. It always remains his, even when his sons rule the nations as princes. This is what is unique about this king, about his dynasty. The praise is always his. In every other dynasty in the world, the praise for the monarch passes to the descendants once they die. Her Majesty the Queen, what is she now, 92, 93? In the coming years, she's going to die, and the national anthem of the United Kingdom will change from God save our queen to God save our king. We will no longer praise her. We will now praise him, the new king. But that will never happen to the king of Psalm 45. The songs of the kingdom will always be about him forever. 
which makes us ask, just who is this royal wedding song actually about? We've seen the beauty of his words, the beauty of his war, the beauty of his rule, the beauty of his bride, with her marriage ending in royal posterity and worldwide praise. So who is he? Well, in the first instance, it relates to a real king in Old Testament times because the mention of the gold of Ophir in verse 9 and the people of Tyre in verse 12 ground the song in a cultural, historical setting. Some scholars think this is a love song about Ahab and his marriage to Jezebel, who was from Sidon, a foreigner. Well, as we'd say in our sophisticated way in Belfast, catch yourself on. Who is ever going to praise a king for marrying Jezebel, if you've read about Jezebel? No, I think Solomon's marriage to Pharaoh's daughter might be the best guess. We know he married a foreigner, and this foreigner bride had to leave her father and family and people. We know Solomon was handsome from the Song of Songs. We know he was known for his wise words, words of grace, we might say. We know Tyre was the most prosperous neighbor to Israel in Solomon's day. But there are also problems with taking this as referring to Solomon. 1 Kings 3 tells us that Solomon's alliance with Egypt and his marriage to Pharaoh's daughter was not a good thing. The kings of Israel were not to marry foreigners in this regard. She was no Rahab or Ruth who converted to the religion of Israel. In fact, we know that it was Solomon's foreign wives that drew his heart away from his God in his old age. And if it was about Solomon then, why didn't the psalmist just say so? The most significant thing is that these descriptions, while touching on Solomon in some way, also don't fit Solomon. They are larger than life. They are too good to be true. They are too beautiful to be real. Just glance back with me over the passage and I'll show you what I mean. In verse 2, you are the most handsome of the sons of men, literally the sons of Adam. But that's an interpretation on the translator's part. The verse could equally be rendered, you are more handsome than the sons of Adam. On the first translation, he is the most handsome from among the sons of Adam because he descends from Adam. On the second translation, he is more handsome than all the sons of Adam because he does not descend from Adam. He is in a league of his own. This king was blessed eternally. Solomon was only blessed initially. In verse 3, this king is presented as a warrior riding forth in splendor and majesty. Well, God is presented as a warrior in the Old Testament who fights. In verse 6, this king is addressed as God. Your throne, O God, will last forever. In verse 7, he is anointed the happiest king on earth. In verse 16, he is promised princes who will rule over the earth, not just over Israel. In verse 17, he is promised eternal praise from the nations, not just from the queen of Sheba. 
So yes, there are similarities to Solomon, but there are too many details, original and organic to the text, that suggest that this king is in a league of his own. Here is a king who is peerless. Here is a king who is beautiful beyond compare. Here is a king of all kings. Here is Jesus Christ. Did you see him? The most beautiful of the sons of men because he is more beautiful than the sons of Adam because he is in a league of his own because he does not descend from Adam. He is the second and last Adam. This psalm is about the beauty of Jesus Christ and his posterity and his praise. Just think about the beauty of our Lord's words. They dripped with grace. They forgave and freed and favored and welcomed the weak and sinful and excluded. People like you and me, sinners like you and me. Jesus' words were his defining mark. Because Isaiah tells us that there was no outward beauty about him that we should desire him. But when he spoke, oh, the beauty of his words. They dripped with grace. And they still do. And because he was a man of grace, he was qualified to be a man of war. Just think about what he fought for. He fought for truth, for humility, for righteousness. Just think of how he confronted the Pharisees with their lies and hidden sins and pride and wickedness. Just think of how he went to war with the authorities in Jerusalem. He exposed their pomp and pride by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Just think about how he humbled himself yet further, becoming obedient even to death on a cross. And yet it was that humble death that was an arrow in the heart of his enemy. Jesus was a humble man who went to war, and it was a beautiful war because he conquered the world, the flesh, and the devil, and then received the title of God himself and an eternal kingdom. Think about the beauty of his rule. It is an eternal kingdom, divine and upright. And then think about the beauty of his bride. That's you and me here this evening, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. And because of that death, we will be presented one day without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, like a virgin, dressed in robes of golden beauty, not our own, given to us by the king himself. And that's why this love song for the king was written, so that we, his bride, might see the beauty of the king, the one who is the fairest of 10,000, the one who is more beautiful than all the sons of Adam, and having seen his beauty, we might burst into song. Because that's what songs do, don't they? They stir our affections and emotions for the ones we love. And what the Holy Spirit says to us tonight through this psalm is, 
betrothed bride of Christ, lift up your heads and behold the beauty of your King. Whether you are down in the valley of the shadow of death or you're up on the mountain peak of blessing, lift up your heads and behold the beauty of your King. Don't hesitate to go to Him. Don't be distracted by this world or your allegiances in in this world. Lift up your heads and behold the beauty of the King. And as the bride of Christ, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Because soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Let us pray. Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For the sake of your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.